Welcome to this week's episode of Nearly Numinous. Today we have our hosts, Jacqueline, myself, as well as Steph and Rachel. We also have a guest, Dr. Shavana Xavier, an assistant professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University. She works on contemporary global Islam and Sufism with particular regional interests in the United States and Canada, as well as Sri Lanka. Within this work, she looks at sacred spaces such as Sufi shrines, rituals, practices, and memory, in addition to gender dynamics. She also has an interest in religion and popular culture. For the last few years, she has taught a course on this subject, and it is this area of her research that we will be focusing on today. last few months, a lot of us have probably spent a lot more time streaming sites like Netflix, uh, and between Unorthodox, Warrior Nun, uh, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, we're seeing a lot of religion and spirituality being alive and well in Netflix new TV shows. So today we wanted to talk about a show that doesn't have a lot of overt religious themes, uh, but we think there's a lot of things worth discussing. So we're very excited to be diving into Zac Efron's recent documentary, Down to Earth, which was released in Netflix in July 2020. Shavano, would you like to ex- just explain a little bit about who you are and what your research is, and maybe also why we thought you'd be a great person to be on this show with us? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you so much for having me on. This is so exciting, and I think this is so great that you're doing this. Um, I'm an assistant professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University. Um, I've I came here, I think I'm starting my third year in September. So I guess I'm fairly new, but not as newish. And um, I did my PhD at Wolfert Laurier University and I've taught in the US for a little bit. And um, I was happy to come back to Canada when I had the opportunity because I grew up in in Scarborough. Um, I'm originally from Sri Lanka, but then came to Canada when I was about uh, six years old. So I have um, this bit of a transnational experience. Um, and I became, I've always been interested in religion. I think like, you know, your host, uh, uh, I did religious studies in my undergrad and religious studies in my master's and religious studies in my PhD. Um, and I also taught. So I went to um, teacher's college and I have a teaching background. So I find that as an assistant professor, all of these kind of um academic training, but also my own personal experiences come together. And so that's what I love about um, working at Queen's and being in the School of Religion. Um, I I love religion and pop culture. So it's something that I work on and write on. But when I write on it and do research on it, I do it specifically in the context of Islam and pop culture and particularly Rumi. So I don't know if uh, your listeners know or the hosts know that uh, Rumi is uh, a 13th century Muslim Sufi poet. Um, and since, and he was very important and, you know, he was a classical thinker, um, but since kind of the colonial times, Rumi's poetry, but also others like Hafez, who's another Persian poet, his poems have been translated. Um, and recently in like the 20th and 21st century, you're seeing a lot of Rumi poems on like Facebook, on Twitter, like Rumi has a Twitter account that somebody's running. <laughs> I'm kind of curious to know who's running the Twitter account, but has like, like thousands and sometimes even millions of followers. Um, now there's an interesting phenomenon Rumi being like misquoted so like the way that somebody creates a meme and gives um, Buddha a quote or Rumi a quote people it's not really a real quote and famous people are you know quoting Rumi or having Rumi tattooed on their body like Brad Pitt has Rumi a Rumi quote on his body and that's tattooed we don't even know if it's like an authentic Rumi quote so like I'm really interested in that like I'm really interested in thinking about how Rumi is translated and how Rumi is like this huge pop cultural icon but he becomes pop cultural icon at the cost of like his Muslimness right he becomes a universal guru he becomes a universal new age kind of figure but in the process of that happening he often like his Muslim identity and his idea of what Islam is as a universal identity is like purged or erased and I think I find that very interesting in a time when global Islamophobia and anti-Muslim hostility is so 
rampant. So just it's uh, like the political and social height of anti-Muslim violence, you also have someone like Rumi who occupies, you know, Amazon and New York Times bestseller. And like, how does that happen? Right. And so it's a Rumi that is not Muslim, but a Rumi that's universal and for the new age market. Right. And so I, I find there's a disconnect there. So I guess before we dive in, we should maybe give a bit of an overview of what the show Down to Earth is for those that are tuning in and maybe haven't watched it yet. So to give a very brief overview, it's a documentary frequently referred to as almost a travel log by Zac Efron and his co-star Dar- Darren Allian. So obviously we, we all know who Zac Efron is, at least I hope we do. Uh, teen heartthrob, still a heartthrob even though I'm not a teen anymore. And we've got Darren Allian who is a businessman, self-proclaimed wellness expert, and author. Uh, he wrote a book that is very heavily promoted throughout the show and that seems to have a lot of controversy surrounding it. So his main thing is that he's super he's super into superfoods and he also promotes these kind of alternative wellness and he works a lot with promoting vegan diets, all that kind of stuff that you see coming out of uh, Hollywood wellness experts. Uh, so something that I, I saw when I was doing a bit of uh, research outside of this show was that he's often referred to as kind of the bro version of Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, <laughs> which I think comes through a lot throughout the show, especially when he says bro every two sentences. <laughs> so in this show, they travel from different countries. They gather insights into what they believe will cause this kind of sustainable revolution that the world needs. Throughout this, they interact with a lot of local cultures and customs. They eat a lot of strange foods. Uh, and it's a little bit of a fun insight into what happens in some of these other communities. Yeah, so obviously throughout the show, there are quite a few instances where Zach and Darren interact directly with religious or spiritual themes. But there are also quite a few examples that we've all noticed that may not seem so obvious. So, for example, and this is in my area of research, I noticed that a lot of their discussions on nature had this reverential aspect to them, sort of framing nature as sacred, even when it's not tied to local religious traditions at all. Like when they're talking about the power of growing local food or waterfalls or just the beauty of nature. And I was wondering what other perhaps non-obvious things you guys might have noticed in the show. So I think one of the big ones for me that I noticed was just the idea of pilgrimage uh, and how heavily we place kind of there's a lot of pilgrimage and journey within the the show itself uh, and a lot of growth and learning that seems to happen regardless of opinions on that growth and learning. So I'm really excited to dive a little bit into that one. Yeah, so the last episode we talked about how the Numinous um, kind of deals with this mysterious um, yet familiar kind of um, entity. And so um, it just reminds me of like the opening of the show. Uh, Zac Efron uses this like David Attenborough voice to kind of open up the show. I wish I could like do that as an example, <laughs> but I can't really do accents. Um, and so just like making... And they're going to Iceland, so they were um, making Iceland sound like super mysterious. And and so that just reminded me of um, when we talked about last time about that experience of, say, going to the mountaintop and and feeling this fear, but also this amazement. So the mystery that they kind of set up, but also how they make everyday, everyday things like water or food um, kind of take on this, this spiritual aspect in that it's both familiar yet mysterious yeah um i think some of the examples that you all mentioned i think those are things that i've thought about um i really thought that the idea of like food was interesting right like i think um food as a spiritual experience as a ritual experience because i I think everywhere they went from like being in Iceland and boiling the eggs in the volcano like the the soil to um even like being in um the Amazon or ingesting ayahuasca, though ayahuasca is not necessarily a food, but you know, there, there's something to do with kind of food practices, especially I think as Stephanie introduced um, Darren's kind of, um, I guess, crusades for diets or whatever these like super, super healthy diets as he's presenting them. So I think that was interesting. But yeah, I think there was, 
I, I just found the whole thing to be like, and I guess this is what religious studies scholars do and students of religious studies do, just you see something and you could only see through the lens of religion, right? <laughs> and so I think for me, the whole thing from beginning to end just felt like, oh, wow, this is definitely um, has to do with religion. And I was like trying to figure out ways to incorporate it into my religion and pop culture class and beat on nature, beat on food, even beat on commodification, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't know if you all noticed, like, but Zach would have his visa card that he would like try to promote and like so like how much of it is like um, how much are all of these things commodified and what is the role of like commodity and consumption and in religious practices and things like that right um so yeah I, I think these are all like amazing themes and we're barely scratching the surface of what what was kind of presented to us in this docuseries in down to earth we see a lot of different elements of the sacredness of nature so like scientific spiritual experiential aesthetic themes um and usually we see a combination of all of them and in our discussion we'll be focusing on the ways in which religiosity and or spirituality intersect with uh like Jacqueline was saying awe and appreciation of nature in down to earth so like I said, um, I my work is in eco-spirituality, but I actually find that another term fits better for the sort of eco-spirituality I see in this show, which is reverential naturalism, uh, which is the sense that being out in nature is not just a place where one does spirituality or religion, but it is a medium through which it is done. And I think that really captures the aspects of awe and appreciation that are so often important in eco-spiritual practices and um, eco-spiritual practices and beliefs and that Zach and Darren throughout the show really tend to engage with. They often express that appreciation of nature and appreciation of sort of the sacredness of nature. Another thing I noticed that has to do with the ecological aspects of the show are lots of mentions of apocalyptic themes. So when they discuss climate change or food shortage or poor distribution of food, um, unclean water, lack of biodiversity, it, it all takes on this apocalyptic lens that I think is usually used it's usually meant to inspire action in viewers. Yeah, so apocalyptic themes are, of course, like part and parcel of climate change discussions. And when they are used, they're usually meant to place emphasis on action, which the show does quite a bit of the time. But um, even when they are using this refreshing emphasis on action that a lot of shows talking about nature don't and climate change don't have they're also showing this naive ignorance of the barriers to action it's a very optimistic show without discussing all the ways in which the solutions they presented might not work out or might not be put into action and Honestly, it's all been covered before in different and more thorough ways in other shows. And I found that the only thing it really adds to the existing body of environmentalist media out there is one, Zach Efron, which it was lacking. I know. he. They only showed him with his shirt off like once. <laughs> <laughs> and two, a more mainstream platform for broadcasting these ideas, which of course is very helpful and useful. But as a result, it's also pretty watered down. It's a shallow look at worldwide problems, which happen to have incredibly complex and deep-seated issues. 
like the solutions that they found, they didn't really present why those might not work. They didn't try to problem solve. Mm-hmm. I noticed that they never really discussed like the structural um, institutional barriers to promoting sustainability as well. Um, like they talked a lot about the, they showed a lot of examples of some of the ways in which people in their communities are putting sustainability into action, but they never really discussed why other communities might not be doing that, whether it's money reasons or a monopoly on energy sources in an area. There are always downsides or there are always barriers to things that they never really discussed, and I think that was that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. Their way around that was almost like a tokenization of especially Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Uh, They kind of presented it as almost this uh, solution of, well, if this poor country can figure it out, why can't everyone else? Yeah, just Uh, do it. And that was their approach to it. Yeah. I think I definitely agree. And I almost was wondering how, like, it was, like, presented in a binary way, like, very much the way early religious studies scholars studied or like anthropologists studied of like positioning the East and the West, like the quote unquote primitive cultures versus the modern Western cultures, right? And the way that certain topics, like like you're saying when they went to, like the way London was presented versus the way that like Puerto Rico was presented, right? Even though they're borrowing and like are engaging in different sites, I do, I do feel that there were unsettling moments, especially when you have like two men and like white men who are going into these spaces and occupying a very gendered and raised position and that are encountering these ritual practices and and are having these moments that seems like at times I felt more with Darren and not with Zach as much and I don't know if it's because I'm trying I'm trying to be protective of Zach but like Darren <laughs> came off more more of like someone who like was walking into spaces as like a white savior and had like more of like an audacious presence in some of these moments especially with like the ayahuasca ritual and all of these things um and so I think it it really does go back to this point that was being made that yeah like there's some kind of like you know typical uh like lack of historical presentation of some of the contacts they were going into and also like not really fully nuancing why certain systems are in place and why certain things are working the way that they're working, which is like culture, like, you know, which is colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, all of these things. Right. Um, And I thought, I thought that was really that like that was like you had to really pay attention to pick it up because you're kind of taken away by the scenery and you're kind of taken away by the cinematography and you're really taken away by the music and the easygoing feel of like Zach and Darren's relationship where if you you really got to pay attention to be like oh maybe this has more to do with like like you know quote-unquote um global world order or like you know people talk about first world and second world and you know these problematic categories or maybe this has more to do with like post-colonial realities or this has more to do with capitalism than it's just like oh we could all just become vegan and then therefore maybe solve this one problem or we could all just you know try to figure out how to filter water or we can maybe like have ideas of belief um, and make it very personal and individualistic right like I, I do agree to some capacity that these are like like, it's great that it's on mainstream media, but yeah, I, I, I don't think anything was resolved at the end, right? Like, yeah. there was never resolutions at any of the end episodes. Beyond the only issue was that maybe Darren's house burned down. And what does that mean for somebody who lives in the Western world that their house burns down? Whereas communities that they had gone gone into, like, you know, Puerto Rico and, you know, the, the hurricane. And it was like, oh, here we've come in and we're going to help you rebuild, right? Mm-hmm. And which was really interesting, right? Like it was again, this position, like very like an anthropological, let's go into this other society and let's use my status to help, but I'm going to go back to my community. Right. And there's still a disconnect. I don't know if you all felt that, but that I had oh, for like sure. that feeling throughout. Yeah. I think one of my biggest issues with this show, uh, and I voiced this to Jacqueline and Rachel already, was that almost everything that they looked at, um, save for maybe one or two things, did not you didn't need to go to that specific location to find it so you look at a lot of the sustainable initiatives that were happening they're happening in the u.s but that's not a show that sells 
you know, right. and that can kind of get into the commodification thing. Uh, we can start to transition to that because I think, uh, you know, maybe the water in Lourdes was, you know, very specific to place, but there's other places throughout the U.S., you know, that they could have done. Right. Right, right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, if you're going to talk about water and water issues, why don't you go to Flint, Michigan? Do you know what I mean? Like, why do you need to go to London and talk about how, or, or, you know, European countries who are offering free water on the streets, you you could do the the other reality that like indigenous communities are don't have access to water in the North American context, or that Flint, Michigan is under has, you know, had these water situation for all these years and the government hasn't done anything like why like but that like that's the like the religious studies that's like the anthropological like we need to go to the exotic other right like it's harder to be self-reflexive and look internally within our own context as it's not exotic enough like it's too much in our backyard but like as the as the expert you need to go to another context and colonize or or not colonize but you know what I mean you need to like you can't be the native studying your own context. You need to go to something far away and then embed yourself there and then like to extract knowledge because you then become the expert who speaks for that context. And yeah. it, it, there were moments that felt like that um, throughout this show, I think, for me, at least for me. Yeah. When especially like Darren, I noticed he would he would often interrupt the experts, which was kind of inter- interesting. Like well, because right. he's an expert, of course. Right. <laughs> expert exactly. in quotation marks. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So like you're going there and then like you're not even going to listen to them. That's really weird. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially once you start to like, you know, drink like I think there was one moment and I, I want to say they were in Puerto Rico and then they were taking sap from a tree and the the individual like the local expert, the indigenous person is, is, is like explaining but it's presented as like Darren is telling the the rest of the crew, like the, these are the right, like you consume this and it helps you with your back pain or it does this or that, the other. And like Darren, you just showed up off a boat. <laughs> like what, who are you, right? Yeah, well, um, I even think too, he, um, in an interview, he even admitted that uh, he didn't wait for the experts to tell him these things. He went and learned it for himself, uh, right. which I mean, we're, we've all spent a lot of time in university already here that uh, I think we can say that that's not how it works, you know? (laughs) And that's like, that itself is a colonial complex, whether we name it or not, right? Like the extraction of knowledge, the positioning of oneself as the expert. I mean, these are the things that we critique now in people, like in religious studies and in these other fields, right? Where we want to think in decolonial ways and think about epistemologies that are coming from people who actually are experts in them as opposed to being the supposed intermediary and translator just because your body looks a particular way or you have a particular social status or national identity. And I think like Darren embodied everything, all of that for me and was so annoying (laughs) throughout the show. (laughs) But yeah, I'm being hard, but yeah. So what I found really interesting was that they like they went to Costa Rica and went to this eco village and the entire time they were in Costa Rica, they they just interacted with the expat. And there was this one scene where they were like on this boat going somewhere else. And there were some like, I I think, indigenous people like driving the boat, but they don't actually ever talk to them. And they kind of like zoom in on oh, them. They show, they show yeah. a lot of, of the locals in a lot of shots. And I even wondered if they were getting media releases for it because it was usually just on a boat going by and stuff. Anyway, that was my question with that. Yeah, like the, when when they got to the eco village and everybody came out and I was like, oh, this is a cult. Like, like it was <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it, it felt like, oh, these are people. And then, the, it, you know, like they, so the fundamental is that everybody like, you know, eats from whatever's around them and cooks and like lives in sustainable ways and are, and are being productive. I think the essence of that idea is so important. But I mean, it, it was like so co-opted by the fact that like nobody's asked wondering why are these expats here and occupying land that's not theirs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having this supposed spiritual experience and like living in, you know, spiritually sustained ways, because the way that they were saying their like supposed grace before they ate, they were holding hands, they were in a circle and you know, all of this becomes this really spiritual, awe-inspiring moment. But the whole time you're like, wait, nobody, none of you actually like are from here originally. Like you've, you've had the power and capital to, to move, like you say, get on a plane, get on a boat and then move and like potentially displace people and have not taken up this space, but it's not yours. Like, what does it look like to do this in your own land where you're from? Like, why are you not willing to save America or wherever you're from, but you're, you're okay to go and, displace somebody else and then take that space and live in like 
you know, the language of being spiritually grounded and one with the land and all of that, that, that episode and that scene is still in my head when they all come out. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and when Zac Efron's like, dude, shut up. There's chicks coming. Oh exactly. Exactly. Oh, exactly. Which really, as you say, like really sh- presents kind of the masculine gendered way that both Zach and and your guy that you folks were saying in the beginning that like Darren's always like bro bro and they're having like really weird conversations when it's one-to-one and sometimes it feels like they're having a father father-son relationship but they're working through something other times it feels like they're just a bunch of like quote-unquote dudes like unleashed <laughs> and are having like weird moments right and so I just it, yeah like I think like the fact that there was just such a masculine perspective and it was gendered in such like a heteronormative way um it was also like fascinating and you're right like when they're like oh look there's chicks on the the shore and they're waving at us it was just like ah like this went this is not cool right and then at one point I think just after that he was like oh there there's some dudes with long hair <laughs> okay cool yeah yeah exactly. well and yeah. even like when they're trying to have heart-to-heart conversations especially in the last scene of the last episode when they're sitting in the car trying to have this heartfelt discussion there's an f-bomb every other word it's like oh don't forget we're bros like we're gonna be touchy-feely but at our core we're cool dudes we're just bros being dudes traveling the world right (laughs) (laughs) they should just use that as a tagline for the show essentially what it was which is interesting because I think, Rachel, to your point, I, I wonder how much of it is like they were playing up their hyper-masculine, like they were being hyper-masculine to kind of change this narrative that like ecofem, like, you know, like, because we usually associate um, spirituality and ecological movements, at least in a religious sense, to like ecofeminism and tied it to like a, a like a fe- like quote-unquote, like socially constructed feminine tendency. So I wonder how much of that they felt that like these are discussions and these are like movements that are usually gendered in very feminine ways if if, you know in this binary sense and they felt that as like men they needed to come with like masculinity but hyper masculinity to kind of like to insert themselves right to almost make it like oh this could be a like a bro dude thing too like we could be dudes about it and talk about ecology talk about like nature and not make it seem like gendered in such like a a passive way right like what do you think about that Rachel because I'm curious since you researched this that's a very good point and I think that um that masculinizing masculine masculinization is that a word yeah, you could totally sure. claim it. <laughs> I'm claiming I'm claiming a new word, masculinization of the ecological messages. I think that's just one of the ways that they um they made those messages more commercially commercially palatable. That's how you pronounce that, right? I'm doing well. Yeah, yeah, yeah doing so good. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, I think that's one of the ways they managed to make or they tried to make those messages more commercially palatable. Um and I guess, more relatable for uh, millennials and people who would not usually be interested in these sort of environmentalist ecological messages like other dude bros who are m- might be like Zac Efron's age. I think it's interesting too, though, that on the note of when they start kind of interacting with more spiritual things and more things that we typically associate with the kind of the feminine identity they they shy away from it a lot like when they go and do the ayahuasca bath they don't really go into detail about you know spiritual experience or things like that you know even in the lord's episode zach maybe says one sentence on wow this feels like a very spiritual place but then that's kind of it you know they really don't want to get too touchy-feely i guess Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such an interesting point. Like, I think it, 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 I hadn't really thought about it until I was in conversation with you. But yeah, I think there's like the gendered lens and the way that like religion, spirituality, e- like ecology, any of these kind of conversations around sustainability, like, I think their response to it and how they perform around it and their like, like existence in those moments are really like interesting because in Iceland it doesn't come off like that because they feel like they're in you know they're in the not in in the the rugged Iceland and they're having these like you know I don't know it just felt like they were being like normal men <laughs> like not in it like you know but in other moments that they were just like being hyper about it and like you know needing to, tr- to turn the dialogue because they were feeling and I think you know Stephanie you're right like I think 
the the ayahuasca one too. I mean, that was the episode that I found was most like like culturally appropriative, right? Um, mm-hmm. And this happens with any kind of ayahuasca ritual, like a lot of conversations. But like, yeah, even in that instance, whereas Darren, like Darren, was willing to like be a little bit more fluid, whereas Zach wasn't. So um, yeah, this is so interesting. I'd have to think about it more and process it more or rewatch the episode. Yeah, that that reminds me of um, like in Iceland, um, how you mentioned that they don't seem to shy away from like kind of spirituality as much I noticed they really focused in on like the Star Wars imagery of like the force is with us and like they really <laughs> looked at like energy and stuff and uh, I thought that was yeah that was quite interesting um I think they only focused on energy and the force um in that episode but to me it kind of it did take up this kind of spiritual um aspect to it um yeah, just because they were talking about like the energy below the ground of Iceland with like the volcanoes and stuff, but then they were also talking about green energy. And so it um I guess because it fits into um this this view of like the dude bro watching Star Wars, maybe it kinda like fits into that narrative a little bit better. Um yeah, I was also I was thinking about just how they talked about energy and how that re- related to like eco spirituality and like green energy. I, I was wondering if anybody like thought about that as well it'd be interesting to know like more specifically what you mean um in because i do understand that there's a lot to do with energy uh in the idea of like religious experience you know and especially with kind of like the sbnr community what that idea of energy means even you know the idea of like grounding um they do that when they arrive in france but that's that's been something that's been on like the kind of gwyneth paltrow sbnr you know kind of wavelength for years and you know you see it more I'm, I'm kind of interested actually that they did that in France and not in Iceland because you'd think like the idea of gathering energy from the earth they'd really want to do that kind of thing in Iceland um but like what what kind of things were you seeing with that yeah I mean I wonder I like I wonder how much of this is like a new age like a, a contemporary moment and I know new age is like this thing that we like it's very complicated and so there's a spiritual but not religious folks and then there's like new religious movements and like new age and so it's like a concoction of all these different movements I wonder how like energy is like an easier word to use right than like it like it's more uh, palatable it's a great word to our like contemporary sense of like science and like modernity where like you like I guess some people would use energy in the new age sense but that's also informed by like a contemporary scientific um like discourse right and so like what would be the adjacent word of energy in religious studies like spirit or exactly exactly spirit yeah or like god right Mm -hmm. like um, cause you don't like, there's never mention of a, like a God throughout. There's like the idea of like an energy or force as you're saying. And even with the Lord's episode, it's like more focused on the Virgin Mary and like the, the actual experience of, you know, um, I, I think Bernadette, right. Who had the ex- like miraculous vision and the water, but it's like, even like Zach is like struggling to say this idea of like, you know, are you, are you praying to a God like, or something that's out there? So I, I don't, I don't think throughout any of them um there's a sense that they're like you know they're talking about a god so they're still like avoiding you know the language of like what we would see as religious studies folks like like god and church and all of these things even though it's kind of there but i think you're right i think they were like more comfortable using ideas like energy and using the language that really aligns a little bit more with like um you know um ecological movements but I don't like I don't know maybe it's because of Zach's generation like who knows right like I don't know if it's a generational thing I mean Darren definitely doesn't seem predis like it doesn't seem into like religion beyond like um like using it as like just a wellness technique yeah exactly like because the one scene I remember of him is when they were both on that roof and like where I forgot where they were staying, but he just like made their um, Zach do some breathing, like meditation in the morning. But yeah, he only approaches it, I think, as Steph was saying, like as a well wellness approach, right? Which we all know, like, and again, with like Gwyneth Paltrow and all these other movements that we're noticing, like how much of that is fulfilling this market where people are moving away from religious institutions. But like as SBNR literature says, they're really still wanting something that feeds them, that individually provides, like it's individualistic, that gives them a sense of choice, that it's not like allows them to be like fluid. And I think like 
Darren epitomizes that, right? I don't know if, like where Zach is located and all of this stuff, right? But I think like Darren is an example of what like the wellness industry is and how you kind of pick and choose these different things and then you kind of concoct a thing that suits you, you right? Um, but I don't know if that makes sense. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but yeah. Oh, for sure. I think that idea of picking and choosing what works for you is a, a very big thing in this show but yeah in the whole industry in itself and I think it's quite interesting as well that there's almost this sense of authority that Darren has in what he's picked and choose what he's chosen uh is kind of the be all and end all and that kind of sense of authority and I think you know we could probably dive deeper into that and talk about you know that kind of western wellness perspective where why would you believe in a god when you figured it all out yourself you know Mm -hmm. it's almost that kind of egotistic nature of things that you see a lot in this kind of American wellness industry, especially when it comes to that male perspective. Because I think when you look at someone like Gwyneth Paltrow, there's still a little bit of element of she kind of talks about a higher power, like whatever that may be. Uh, But with Darren and Zach, they they really shy away from that higher power language. You're right. Right. And I wonder how much that is gendered. But I think both with Gwyneth Paltrow and with these folks, this is where you see commodification come in very explicitly. Like, it's just not about the Visa card and the, like, you know, the little... RVCA um, t-shirts and snapbacks. Exactly. (laughs) I don't think it's that, right? It's That's just, like, the product placement at a very basic level. (laughs) If we're talking about commodification, I mean, like, you know, as you said in the beginning when you introduced Darren, like the entire show is premised like he you know his con- his book is constantly being promoted his his way of life is constantly being promoted and it does seem that the entire docu series is promoting Darren's way of life that somehow that he's discovered right like, like he's the one who has friends in Puerto Rico and he's the one that he he knows this thing and he wants to introduce Zach to and and so like Darren seems to kind of occupy the space of authority at, throughout the show as being an expert you know and then and so it comes back to this idea well what makes an expert and what are the things that he selected right just I mean just because you wrote a book right um and so he is selling himself like I wonder how much of his business went up after this docuseries came up if he got new clients that he's I'm coaching sure right yeah All right, so this is maybe a good area that we can start transitioning to the idea of the episode on Lords, because Mm -hmm. I think that this idea of kind of disrespecting, maybe that's a strong word, but not fully respecting authority comes through a lot in that episode just on how they frame it. And Mm -hmm. I think we all seem to be very uncomfortable with how they portray the doctor at the beginning. And I feel like it almost sets it up like this is the one instance that they're dealing with a western like westernized religion in probably the whole series if i'm not mistaken and they really set it up as kind of a mistrust and not a huge amount of respect just by the, the the introduction of the video to me personally that seemed like a very intentional thing that they chose to left in the doc leave that they chose to leave in the documentary because i think that the the episode would have been the exact same without it i don't think that scene was necessary um, but it was it seemed very intentional that they kind of wanted to set up this view of the Catholic Church and the systems and this miracle system where they, they weren't really they didn't feel welcomed into it. You know? I hated that scene so much <laughs> just because I just like I feel like awkward tension so strongly. And so I was just sitting there just like, oh, my goodness, like why? Because they um, for the listeners, you maybe haven't seen that scene. Um, they in interrupt the doctor so the doctor is like extending hospitality how like how are you enjoying the town um and then the like the the set people were like wait like we need to make sure that like zach's mic is working stop talking and so they like just totally cut him off and so the doctor is like upset about that because they just interrupted him while he was extending hospitality and they just make him look like this awful person and i hated it so much I think it's also interesting that that was like, you know, it took somebody who also was located in a particular way with like class and privilege to call them out on their bullshit. Do you know what I mean? Like where in other instances it was like, 
you know, there that kind of power dynamic wasn't like it wasn't on equal footing. It's you know what I mean? Like these two people who come and because um, the doctor was like, I have a million other things to do. Like I don't need you. You know what I mean? Whereas in in so there was like an equal power dynamic. Whereas I, I don't think in any of the other situations that that existed, right? And I think that really just speaks to um, what like the position that Zach and Darren occupy and what they represent as people who come in with camera crews and all of this and like, you know, potential for PR and maybe even money or whatnot. So um, like, because we don't really know what's happening in the background of these shows and what the implications or, you know, of these shows are. Right. So, yeah, that was really bizarre. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I did kind of enjoy him calling them out though yeah me too yeah. totally i love that he told them to leave right yeah. yeah but it's also interesting that a bunch of men are like fighting over this thing where like the entire ritual the sacred space the miracles everything is centered on like a narrative of a woman right that is like right and so i think that here's another instance where like performance of gender and like gender identity is like playing out in these particular ways right and who are the gatekeepers and um you know yeah so i don't know that's also curious to think about as well like they're all fighting over lords (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah for sure it's interesting the the catholic church having gender dynamic issues uh that's a new topic (laughs) never All right, so maybe to kind of keep going on the uh, Lords episode, because I think there's a lot here just outside of that instance Mm -hmm. with the Doctor that we can really dive into, um, just because, you know, we've already talked about the idea of Zach feeling this kind of profound sacredness and holiness in this space. And, you know, I think, Jacqueline, you maybe had something to say on how this episode fits in with kind of the larger narrative of health and healing in the show. Yeah, so um, the episode does talk about uh, miracles and healing, just because Lords is a is a place where, um, like, a lot of people. I think I think the show says four to six million people come to visit every year. Not all of them, maybe for healing, um, but for like pilgrimage and um, like healing miracles have um, been said to have been happen have been said to have happened at Lords, and so. Um, yeah, so the doctor, the doctor was talking about um, the various ways that the Catholic Church kind of like tracks miracles at Lourdes because I guess a lot of people come and maybe they um, experience some sort of healing, but in order for the Catholic Church to consider it like an official miracle, it has to go through a bunch of different steps. So it needs like a diagnosis. It needs to have not been like just a cold. It needs to be just unexpectedly gone, gone immediately. And so I was just thinking about like the show focuses on health and wellness and kind of healing as well. Um, healing through food. Um, there's the episode in, uh, in Italy, I believe, where they're talking about... Um, Zach obsesses over carbs. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I get it. I also love carbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they eat a lot of pasta. Um, so like there's the population. They go to this town where there's a lot of what's that fancy word like where a lot of people live to be over 100 centarians centarians so kind of just like this idea of like by looking at this diet we like and if we would kind of replicate this diet we too could also maybe live as long as them and kind of experience this like healing that they're also having but in lords it's like it's about miraculous healing well they almost try like like we were talking about before they almost try to bring it away from that religious element like they do in much of their show you know they still have that idea of the numinous in their experience you know zach talks about having this like religious experience but they really don't talk about the idea like they're like well it might be a miracle <laughs> right you know yeah and he they talks just leave about it. like placebo also which i thought was really interesting because placebo like the way that zach talked about placebo is kind of like diminishing oh then it like actually wasn't a miracle but if you think about it placebo is like an amazing thing like to 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 think about the fact that our body can like heal itself just because we believe that like our body can heal itself is like pretty miraculous and so zach also says um like oh like it like is it like is it a like real healing or not like oh it doesn't matter i mean it doesn't matter like where this where this uh spiritual force comes from like if it comes from within or without or whatever like it doesn't matter but i thought that was really like it diminished the experience of the people at lords because these people clearly were coming to lords 
to experience God because this is a Christian space and um, by saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Like to these people, it matters. Um, And looking at placebo, like if they didn't believe in this, like even like, like for a placebo to work, you need to actually believe that the placebo can happen. You don't actually, like you don't think it's a placebo. That's the whole thing about placebo. And so just by saying, oh, it doesn't matter, it just kind of like really diminished the spiritual um, experience of the people that were actually, like that were pilgrimaging to that space that I thought was really interesting. I think that was another way that they tried to make the show or the subjects of the show more palatable to a wider audience, just bringing down the uh, the themes of spirituality and religiosity and saying, oh, you know, even if it's not a miracle, like, who cares? It's, yeah. Yeah, I think um, I'd be interested to know if anybody has thoughts on kind of the general impact of when something happens. So when you have overt religious experience and themes in this kind of documentary that's kind of almost brought down and diminished, because uh, I'm sure that that has lasting impacts on, you know, the idea of pilgrimage, um, how religious communities view this. And I think this is, extends far beyond this one experience. You know, I'm sure that even, you know, Shivana, you were t- discussing a lot about Rumi and how how we co-opt these religious traditions and bring them down to a secular lens and how that kind of functions within society. Like, I know that's a very big question, but (laughs) even if there is something you have to add to that. Yeah. Like the Lord's episode was interesting and also interesting from the doctor who kept saying, like, look, I was like a, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a practicing physician. I had this experience. Now I come here and I work to like, support the fact that these miracles are true but I mean he like you know on the table he's pulling out MRIs and x-rays and all of this stuff and so here in this moment what I thought was so fascinating is this idea that they're like you're using the idea of like a scientific secular methodology to prove um, like this non-secular like phenomenon that's miraculous which which like is interesting right which goes to this point of like there's always opposition of science and religion as these things that exist in polar opposite spaces or like you can't be in you can't inhabit both but the fact that a doctor is presenting himself and saying look I'm a doctor I have these degrees I'm and uh, and we're using like actual proper scientific methodology quote unquote to prove that you know this man was cured of his cancer that this woman who had um, a differing ability um, one day was able to walk again right um, and so like that like that was really fascinating but I mean when a lot of people look at sacred spaces one of the things that happens is that everybody kind of projects onto the sacred spaces their their own experiences right and so like sacred spaces ultimately end up being sites of far more contestation and far more like um like far more heterogeneous and ever homogenous right and so like the thing that might be bringing people to the space is that like a particular mythology or like lords like so the sacred figure but like the way in which people arrive at that space is different so like when you have like Zac Efron being like oh this is like collectively very interesting to have everybody walking here and holding a candle and praying I've never experienced something like that to somebody who's coming with deep belief that they like this is their last resort and like there's no other medical cure for them and so they hope that God or like the Virgin Mary will cure them to other people who might just be tourists to be like, oh, I'm here to see what this phenomena is, right? But all of those experiences, like scholars of sacred spaces will say like that forms, because there's nothing intuitively sacred about a space, like, you know, like a space is constructed based on all of these, like, you know, heterogeneous perspectives that come and then sustain it, right? These narratives that sustain it. So I think that like definitely is one thing. And I think this is the same thing with Rumi, right? So not in a spatial sense, like, you know, I often get asked, like, why is Rumi proliferating the way that he is? It's just people, and I think you could say this about religions generally, people are tapping into it in their own capacity, right? This is, like, where the individualism comes in. Like, whether you like Rumi on social media, like, on Instagram, or whether you have him tattooed on your body, or whether you're a Muslim, or whether you're a Persian, like, everybody's able to add a narrative to this thing. And then we, as religious, well, at least I do, I don't know if every religious studies scholar does this, like, I just take for granted if they tell me that this is their interpretation of Rumi, then I'm like, okay, well, that's your interpretation of Rumi, right? And that interpretation exists along this one, and this one, and that one. 
And I think that's like what sustains it, right? Um, so I don't like, I don't think the Rumi now is like the historical Rumi at all. And I don't think the Rumi on Twitter is like, but it doesn't matter for me, right? Like I'm not like looking for the real Rumi, like I'm looking for the Rumi that it's, it's become. In a similar way, like I'm looking for Lords, like I'm not looking for the historical authentic Lords because I don't think that's an interesting question or that's not, it's not as fun as trying to figure out who Lords has become, like the science around Lords and like the, like the mechanisms around Lord, like the higher and uh, the church's institutionalization like that tells a far more fascinating narrative and what the pilgrims are projecting onto her I think is far more fascinating than ever like I don't really I don't really care about lords as like whatever figure that she was or I don't of course I care about Rumi but I don't really care about <laughs> Rumi and like you know what I mean like the 13th century Rumi like I'm really fascinated by the 21st century Rumi because I think that there's just like what is happening? Like I want to know like how this happened, right? And I think as someone who does pop culture, like I'm like invested in like the evolving nature and the new narratives and like the layering that happens. And I think that was kind of what was fascinating about Lords is like the new narratives. And who knows? Like so, let's envision like a hundred years from now, there there is a Lords, right? And we as a planet are still existing, and the apocalypse hasn't happened. Like <laughs> what, what what would that look like, right? Are we going to be talking about like a cyber a cyborg Lords, or like you know, like what would be future instasy like iterations of these phenomena that we're talking about? Because the the transformation of these practices is what sustains them. And so as long as people find meaning to add to these narratives that have existed for hundreds of years, and that's going to sustain. And the meaning is never going to be the same. And I think this is precisely what like scholars of religion are interested in. Like, what is the meaning that people are constructing? Because then that then gives us a way to look back and see, well, what are people interested in, right? Like, we are fundamentally interested in people. Why are people doing the thing that they're doing, right? Why do you need science to prove a miracle? Right, like what's so? What's that about? Um, why does Rumi need to be on social media? Like, why does he need an Instagram? <laughs> like, what's that about? Right. So I think I think you know, in some ways, we're all asking the same question. We always have been, like, but our like case studies are just transforming, and like you know, and I think that's exciting. Like you know we're just talking about nature as a religious space right and i think that's like what are the questions that it's asking especially when as the world is burning down like literally like the west coast is burning down right and like what does that mean and what is being in this apocalyptic moment mean right and i think i think it's just it's a, it's a, it's scary but i think it's also like important for us to pay attention right and i think religious studies some of the questions it asks gives us some tools to process that um so yeah yeah, I think uh, it's really interesting bringing that idea of sacred space back to uh, the documentary, especially at the end where Darren's house burns down. Mm-hmm. And he makes the comment that I think a lot of people like to say uh, when this kind of tragedy happens, that it's like, well, you know, it's just stuff. It's just my house, you know, like, I'm still alive, my pets are still alive, etc. And yes, that's hugely, hugely important and a, probably a very good perspective to have when you've lost everything. Um, but I think there's still an element of that where you even see at the end of the show, Darren goes back and he is torn apart, you know, because it, it, it goes to show that space can be that important, you know, your home can be that important to you. And yes, you still have your life, you still have the opportunity to build that new space. Uh, but I think that idea of space is still very crucial. Right, right. It's interesting, like, more sympathy was given to him than, like, you know, what was happening. And I think in some ways it was, like, in what happened in Puerto Rico with the the hurricane and everything. But it, it, it you know, it, like, destruction of somebody who's American, somebody who's white, somebody who's a male, like, that was given more space and time versus, you know, destruction in a faraway place with people that don't look like us, right? Um, and I wonder how much of that was like meant to be like, let's bring this back home that it's it's really hard for us to connect with climate change when like places that are not our own home are the ones that are destroyed. Like Puerto Rico seems far away, even though it is part of America. Right. But like, I wonder how much of that was to bring it being like, oh, climate change is happening in our own backyards. And that's the only way that the audience is going to respond to this. Right. Because if it's happening far away and if it's not happening to people that don't look like us and it's not as real. But if it's happening in Malibu, out of all places, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. this is how you get people on a cause. Yeah, well, and I even think Zac Efron himself even makes that comment where, 
you know, he makes the statement that, oh, well, I can't believe this is happening. And even to think that Puerto, Puerto Rico is an American territory, you know, and it's almost like even in his own mind, the only way that he can justify being so upset about this is by claiming it as American space. Right, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I think space here is like, it's like sacred space, but also space and like, like territory and geography and geopolitical space. Like it, it like, it's like, there's tiers of like spatial dynamics, right? I mean, they're traveling to spaces, they're encountering spaces, there's sacred spaces, but then there's like, there's also territoriality, right? And there's this creation of create, creating boundaries, like who are, who are people within your boundaries and who are people that are not and borders, right? And the consequences of that, and maybe even the limitations of that when you're having conversations about ecology and sustainability right um and i think that's so fascinating yeah I just wanted to say before we move on, I don't know about the sales or anything, but I looked up the Google Trends for Super Life, Darren's book, and the Google searches for it positively boomed in the week after the show is released. So I'm not super surprised about that. But even now, a couple months later, um, the Google Trends are showing like heightened searches, uh, heightened searches more so than people were searching before the show came out so i guess all the product placement and uh advertising for darren worked i wonder if rvca also got a boom in sales let me look that up it did take me a while so i think it wasn't until the the third or fourth episode when i was like he only owns rvca clothing (laughs) i actually didn't notice at all it sure did oh it did yeah it um more so than super life but yeah they got a spike at the same time that's fair i did google what that place was after watching it and noticing this came up a lot and now i'm tempted to go buy clothes so (laughs) i get it product placement works on me yeah but I mean, that was like, it's it's interesting though, right? Like the, the entire show is about sustainability, about living in like friendly, you know, eco-friendly ways and not like getting stuff. And then the show happens and everybody's going and buying this book and buying a bunch of stuff, even you stuff maybe. So- <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Not yet. But yeah, right. Like this, like this, yeah, this is like what com- consumption and commodification is, right? Like, um, yeah, this all makes me very suspicious. Oh, yeah. Well, and even that goes back to my original issue with the whole thing that, like, why did you need to travel across the world to see a fruit that has a high concentration of vitamin C? There's right. so much food that grows in the U.S. and in Canada for us that right. has a high concentration of vitamins, nutrients that does the same thing. And it, it, it just, again, it didn't make sense to me that it's like, if you're promoting sustainability, you should be promoting things that are accessible in your own backyard. I think I, like, you know, in some ways it was it was interesting to watch. Like I was texting with a friend who um, is a prof in kinesiology and who does environmental, like focuses on the environment. And so we were just having like really interesting conversations. It was kind of curious to see what are the things that she was picking up? What are the things that I was picking up? So I, I think then at the end, the show, especially as we're all like shut in and COVID is happening, I think for all of its limitations and for all of the things that it does not do so well, I do also think it's interesting to have someone, we know how this works, right? Like someone like Zac Afron shed light on anything. And so the fact that I think with Rachel's opening point that the fact that it's mainstreaming a conversation, a conversation that we know that in many of these spheres are so far ahead, right? Like we know that it's, you know, has progressed into other spheres where this seems a little bit introductory and a little bit maybe appropriative or consumptive or like, you know, colonial in, in some ways. Um, it, it, it is interesting that this is like the attempt to get it at the forefront and get people to talk about it. And especially for people who I think someone like Zac Afron has like 
a platform, right? And um, and I think that's important, right? I mean, um, I don't want to diminish that either, right? He may not be my like my, you know, I may not be his audience, but his audience may be people who are in their teens or in their twenties, right? And and I think that in some ways it's still work um, that matters, yeah. One of the things I loved about it is that it, like we were all stuck at home and we were being exposed to places that we couldn't physically have access to, which also says a lot about us as individuals and our capacity to travel, like what is travel going to look like post COVID, especially if, if we're gonna all be hungry and desperate for travel, like how much is that going to um, further, how much of that is going to further uh, be a catastrophe for our ecosystems and for the environment, right? Because now we're like not traveling and now all of a sudden if everybody has the urge to travel and has the capacity to like guaranteed that's going to create some kind of um, environmental damage that's also going to be difficult to recover from, right? And so, yeah. Thank you for having me. This is fantastic and you're all doing fantastic work. I'm, I'm so happy to have been part of the conversation and to learn from you all.